Welcome to Trial Lawyer View, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer View. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer View is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement planning. Joining me today on Trial Lawyer View is Kate Conway. She's an outstanding trial lawyer practicing with the Chicago-based law firm of Powers Rogers. Her practice focuses on representing individuals and their families in personal injury and wrongful death actions, including medical malpractice, premises liability, product liability, automobile and transportation negligence cases, she has successfully tried cases in both state and federal court and helped recover millions of dollars for her clients, including a recent $6.4 million recovery for the family of a woman who died due to complications from a cardiac procedure. And we'll talk a little bit about that. So I'll read a little bit of her bio so you've got an understanding about Kate. Uh, in 2019, Kate was named one of the Law Bulletin's 40 attorneys under 40 to watch. She's been selected as an Illinois Super Lawyers Rising Star every year since 2014 and an Illinois Emerging Lawyer every year since 2015. In 2020, Kate was named one of the top 10 emerging women lawyers in the state of Illinois. Kate is active in several bar associations and is serving as the president of the Women's Bar Association. Well, I guess you've concluded that now, uh, 2021 bar term. Uh, she also serves on the board of managers of the Illinois Trial Lawyers Association as a council member of the Illinois State Bar Association and as a member of Loyola University Chicago School of Law's Alumni Board of Governors. She's gotten some incredible verdicts and we'll talk about some of those cases during the podcast today and settlements as well. Kate graduated from the University of Illinois with a dual major of political science and psychology and thereafter obtained her Juris Doctorate degree from Loyola University of Chicago School of Law. Kate, welcome to Trial Lawyer View. So nice to have you as a guest today. Really appreciate you joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So before we get into all the law stuff, uh, I read in your bio that you studied psychology in undergrad and had applied for a clinical uh, psychology PhD program, but then decided to go to law school instead. I'm curious how that came about. It, it jumped out at me since that's exactly the same path I took and made the same decision ultimately to go to law school instead of pursuing my psychology undergraduate degree. Oh, neat. Uh, yeah, for me, um, it, you know, I loved the study of psychology. I just found it absolutely fascinating. But when, and I think what drew me to at least the study of it was truly just the fascination of other humans and some of these phenomenons that we study in psychology but um, when I thought about life post-school, um, I was more drawn to like ad active advocacy. And it seems like the law would offer me that, whereas 
psychology and as important as it is and as fascinating as it is, um, kind of the helping roles I was looking at uh, being a clinical psychologist seemed seemed like a more supportive role. And I, I just felt like I had this kind of need to be more of a an active advocate. And so the law seems like a great kind of intersection uh, of that. Yeah, very similar for me too. I, I knew I wanted to help people in some way. I loved the psychology undergraduate degree. I, I really loved the coursework, uh, but ultimately I, I was looking at industrial psychology, which I thought, well, maybe I really am not going to be helping all that much in that role. But anyway, <laughs> uh, someone someone very close to me, uh, an advisor, had said, why don't you think about going to law school? And I went, hmm, uh, yeah, that sounds like a good thing. And like <laughs> you, out. that's... Yeah, it worked out ultimately. So one, one more uh, non-law question. Uh, when I was uh, reading an article about you, it said that you had started a food blog um, and that, and uh, you know, between this time period when you were uh, taking the bar and starting at Powers Rogers and you did an Italian cooking school, <laughs> how did you find time or how do you find time to do that with your career? I know you're married, you have a child, you've got two rescue dogs. Sounds like a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Uh, and I will admit that uh, recently, especially after having a, a second child during COVID, the, the food blog has fallen by the wayside just a little bit. But I started it in law school. And I think it's just important. And this is being recognized more and more, maybe the last two years because of the difficulties with the pandemic. Um but it's important to have some sort of passion project, right? That, that isn't necessarily just your work. Maybe it is totally related to your work. Maybe it's totally unrelated. But for me, food was that thing. So I started it in law school. It was kind of just a for fun side project. I honestly started it over a break uh, from school when I was off between semesters. And then it was just kind of a fun outlet since that time. And, and again, it's kind of fallen off in the more immediate uh, recent past, but it's been a fun thing. You know, I've made some cool connections through it uh, and I've, I've made some bonds. There are a lot of attorneys who are really into cooking and into eating. So it's been it's been fun. I'm definitely into the eating part. I'm just not a very good cook. I've never been very good at it. But I saw a, a picture that was shared. It was something that apparently was something to do with Martha Stewart. No. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was impressive. It's kind of a funny story. I was in a mediation uh, on a pretty big case. And all of a sudden, you know, and sometimes in mediations, you do have these kind of long pauses where the judge is now working with the other side before they come back to you. So I'm sitting there with one of my partners and my phone is just blowing up. I mean, it's just a million notifications. And, you know, I'm purposely not checking it because we're engaged in something important. But eventually when I do, I see that I've gotten, you know, thousands more followers and it's because Martha Stewart had reposted this picture of this cake I had baked. That was her recipe. So I tagged her in it, not really thinking twice about it. And yeah, pretty funny. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a great story. Yeah. Well, so I've interviewed uh, quite a few female trial lawyers and I've asked this question before and I wanted to ask it of you because I think it's, it's worth talking about. Can you talk about being a woman in what is typically a male-dominated profession in terms of trial lawyers? There, there seems to be a lot more men as trial lawyers versus women, and maybe the top couple of challenges that that's presented for you as a woman being a trial lawyer. 
Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think one of the challenges uh, is I, I have extraordinary mentors. So I was lucky to be able to find and to have kind of mentors adopt me as a mentee, um, even though, you know, I'm a female and, and they're males that luckily didn't serve as, as kind of an impediment to anyone. But um, as a young, you know, aspiring trial lawyer, I remember wanting to emulate some folks who were ahead of me. And, and my colleagues are extraordinarily talented. So there are certain things that I am absolutely able to, to copy and, and mimic and do as they do. But there are a lot of things that aren't quite right, maybe for me personally. And, and maybe it's because I'm a female. I think that definitely has something to do with it. And, and maybe it's just a style that I didn't think was kind of consistent with my approach and my personality. And so it was really challenging to find other women uh, trial lawyers to emulate. And so what I would do, and my colleagues here were, were really helpful in this uh, regard, they would say, hey, you know, so-and-so is on trial, you should consider going to see her. Um, and a lot of times those were defense lawyers, because there were really only so many women plaintiffs lawyers um, that, that I really could go watch, that I had the opportunity to go watch, even though I had my ear to the ground, other people were offering this to me. So often I would go to court to watch women defense lawyers um, who were very talented trial lawyers to just get a sense of kind of their approach to see if they had a style I could emulate uh, more easily. And, you know, so that was one of the challenges kind of early on. And then I think just, um, I don't want to say socially, but, you know, that there's a amazing collegiality that exists uh, among the plaintiff's bar and really among trial lawyers on both sides of the aisle. And, uh, you know, at first it was a little, I think, harder for me to kind of find some other female colleagues, um, although that's that's readily changed. You know, I, I've already seen, I think, a shift over the 10 years I've been practicing that there are just more and more women um, staying in litigation. I think formally, if you were in litigation, you know, at some point, maybe you would transition to an in-house or a non-litigation type role or, or maybe a judicial role. I don't know. Um, but you know, there, it seems that there's been a bit of a shift. So I'm optimistic that some of the challenges uh, that I faced early on in my career won't be the same for folks coming, you know, along in the next 10 years, but we'll see. Yeah, it does seem like it's, it's shifted. Um, yeah, certainly from when I was in law school, which I graduated in 96. I mean, we had a lot of women in my law school class, but just, you know, I, I don't think I, I know of maybe maybe two out of my whole class that went into um, you know, trial law, the practice, um, especially on the plaintiff side, probably more defense lawyers. Yeah. But, you know, I, I wanted to ask you because I saw in your bio that you had been recognized by the Women's Bar Association of Illinois um, in 2017. You, you got a service award uh, for the organization um, in helping to fulfill its mission to promote and protect the rights of women and women lawyers. Um, I, I guess this really kind of was a natural, um, you know, um, add on to the last question. What, why is that important to you? Yeah. I almost mentioned the women's bar when I was answering that last question. So it was really important to me for a couple of reasons. Um, but one of the biggest reasons was just having that support network outside of my firm. I thought it made a lot of sense to join an association that had the mission that the Women's Bar has, which is to promote, foster, advance, and protect women and women lawyers. 
Um, and so I was immediately drawn to the association for that reason. But also, practically speaking, it seemed like a great opportunity to meet like-minded women in uh, similar, you know, in the legal industry and in similar uh, legal paths as I had taken. And that turned out to be very true. I, I have met so many people um, in, in my specific area of practice and just across the board. Uh, and it's been so rewarding to have that network, to have that support, to have those kind of role models and connections. And then to work on, you know, the issues that we've worked on, um, you know, some of it's legislative, a lot of it's just providing leadership opportunities, a voice, a platform for women in the law uh, across the state of Illinois. So it, it was something I wanted to do right when I graduated law school. In fact, I shouldn't have waited that long. I should have probably jumped on board and gotten involved in law school. I just, I guess, hadn't thought of it. Um, but, it, you know, it's been really, really rewarding. And, uh, you know, it's it's a highlight of my professional career to have led that association and to still be a part of that really strong network. Yeah, I saw that you you were the youngest woman ever to be president of that organization. So that's that's pretty cool. And I I love asking about this because I'm such a firm believer in having um, female lawyers as part of our leadership team, you know, the the lawyers that run our lien resolution group, our Medicare compliance group, and our director of operations all are all female lawyers and they do such an amazing job. And I, I think that one day they're they're all gonna be leading this organization, um, which is what I would love nothing more to see uh, because I, I do believe that uh, there's, a, there, there's unfortunately been too little uh, women that have been given the opportunity to lead and that's uh, a shame because there there's some really talented people out there that uh, perhaps have not gotten the opportunity. Uh, so I uh, switching gears, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, after deciding to go to law school, um, after you made that that transition from deciding to, to give up on psychology or and make make a different career choice, what led you to become a trial lawyer after you graduated from law school? Yeah, that's a good question. I uh, So interestingly, when I did decide to go to law school, I knew I wanted to be a litigator. Um, it just oral advocacy seemed like the thing I would want to do with my law degree. So um, that I knew, you know, I, I even remember I had a, a colleague in, in law school who now does the same kind of work that I do. And so we've kind of always been on this path together and it's been real fun. But I remember in law school kind of strategizing about what courses made the most sense for us because we had a pretty distinct idea as to what we wanted to do. Now, I didn't know it ended up being personal injury necessarily. I remember um, thinking maybe the best opportunity for me was was in the criminal arena because uh, there's so much trial work. There's so much court time. It seemed really, really appealing. There's obviously issues of life and liberty that are incredibly essential. It's an important system to uphold. Um, and I, my first job was working at the state's attorney's office, but that internship just so happened to be on the civil side versus the criminal side. Um, and when I was there, I was practicing over at the Daily Center, the same courthouse where I practice today. Um, and, you know, I liked it. I liked it a lot more than I thought I would. So that kind of made me reconsider the, the civil side. And then I was fortunate enough to get an internship at Power Rogers. And so once I began working there, that kind of sealed the deal. It was just such an extraordinarily 
interesting uh, job. And we got some real great experience, even as law clerks. I got to watch uh, a couple trials that first summer and I was, you know, I was hooked. So I knew it was, you know, kind of the perfect intersection in a way of this psychology background, this fascination of, of working with people and trying to help people. Um, and, you know, in a way, the, the, my intention when I'd been pursuing higher education in psychology was to become a clinical psychologist. And so, you know, that's basically, you know, a counseling psychologist. And so we're called counselors, but, but uh, in, in personal injury litigation, when you're representing people who've suffered a horrific trauma or an injury, or they've lost someone due to the fault of somebody else, there's a huge component of client counseling that goes into your representation and your advocacy of them. So in a way, it ended up being truly the perfect um, opportunity for me to be an oral advocate, to be a, you know helping people, um, to use some of the skills I, and the interest that I had in psychology uh, and, and to do trial work. So yeah, it worked out. But that's kind of how I ended up getting there. I knew I knew litigation, and then this this worked out. When I was in law school, I got the opportunity to clerk in uh, federal court for a, a federal judge, which was an incredible experience getting to see what was going on in that federal courtroom. And the one regret I have is that I never took the opportunity to do trial work on the plaintiff side because when I got out of law school, I, I wound up doing defense work, which I didn't like, and got into the settlement services world to really help plaintiffs and personal injury victims because I didn't want to be on the defense side anymore after I had had that experience uh, as a lawyer. But I think that that certainly would align with, you know, what I do every day, which is try to help people in, in the capacity now that, that I serve. But uh, I, I wish that I would have gotten the chance, uh, although I still do. I, I do a little bit of litigation here in Florida with Medicaid. Um, Florida Medicaid has a very weird uh, statutory uh, regulatory scheme to reduce their liens. So I do a little bit of that. So I still get to do a bit of learning through my law firm, which is separate from Synergy, uh, but totally different from that. Um, you know, in, in my family, I, I didn't have any, actually both my parents didn't go to college. Um, so I was, I was a little unique, but I read that your dad uh, is a trial lawyer. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you, you didn't really mention that in your influence. I got to think that that had some influence. But then I also read that you had the opportunity to try a case with your dad, uh, which sounds like a really cool experience um, to, to have had with your dad. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, my dad is a trial lawyer as well on the plaintiff side, um, although his firm primarily does asbestos and mass tort litigation. So it's a little different, but there's there's major overlaps there, right? Um, and that's kind of part of the reason, to be honest, I, I was just set on, I'm going to do my own thing. You know, I always admired what he did. He worked so hard. He was obviously incredibly good at what he did, but I thought I got to do my own thing. And so I kept looking for other stuff. And a lot of my close friends were like, you're just denying the inevitable go to law school. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm, you know, I'm figuring it out. And, um, so, so that's certainly true. Um, and that was the other reason that the criminal arena seemed appealing, right? This, that was a distinct area of the law, although, you know, I'd also be a lawyer and I, I think I probably was denying the inevitable. So I ended up doing plaintiff's work. Um, you know, he certainly was a huge influence. I remember back to a young age, um, you know, we were raised to help those less fortunate. That was just a constant kind of mantra in our household. So, 
Um, and we went to a Jesuit high school. My dad went to the same Jesuit high school and their kind of mantra there was men and women for others. So they're always saying that, you know, got to be a woman for others. Um, so, it, you know, kind of that's, that's been a common thread that was completely a part of his influence. What can I do to try and help other people? Right. And, um, but so we did, we ended up at different firms doing similar work. Uh, but we had this unique opportunity because this case came along, it came to him. Uh, and it was a case where a, a barge or really a series of barges are on this river in Illinois. And there's a, there's a terrible storm. So the water is kind of, the currents is out of control. The barge doesn't have enough uh, power to stay away from this dam. And the dam uh, abuts this little town, um, Marseilles, Illinois. Okay. It's spelled the same way as Marseille, France, but it's Marseilles, Illinois. And so the, the barges eventually lose control. They crash into the dam. They damage the, the dam badly and the whole town is flooded. And so he was contacted by a bunch of homeowners in Marseilles who lost everything. You know, their property was absolutely destroyed um, and, you know, just all sorts of terrible, terrible losses. And then the, the city itself came to him and said, you know, can you represent us? And there was potentially, it turned out not to be true, but potentially there could have been some conflict because what if the, you know, the city had some involvement with this kind of regulation of the river and, you know, some connection to this barge company, or, you know, they could have done other things to control flood mitigation. And, you know, potentially these homeowners could have had some sort of claim against the city as well. As it turned out, once we investigated the case, that that was not, that was not true. But so the two of us ended up, um, litigating that case. We ended up settling mid-trial, um, but we were on trial together in federal court for quite a while. And so it was pretty funny because we're at different firms, but we're working together on this case and it was a really massive case. Um, and yeah, we're, we're in federal court side by side for weeks. Um, and then the case ended up, ended up settling. So yeah, pretty funny. So did you feel any pressure with your dad being oh, yeah. counsel on the case? And I, I assume your styles are probably different. I mean, everybody's different. So yeah, I, I'm sure that, that that was an interesting experience. I I'm, can't even imagine doing that with my dad. But <laughs> Definitely. So I felt a lot of pressure. Um, you know, we but it was great. He gave me a lot of opportunity. Um, and you know, I think we made a good team. We do have different styles, but I think they're very compatible. So it was, it was nice. It was really fun, you know? And then, and then since that time, um, you know, I do a lot of medical malpractice. His firm does not, but again, he's used to cases that are similar in the sense that, you know, they're, they're complex and they require a lot of expert discovery, lengthy trials. So, um, it's been fun to have him kind of in my corner. He always comes and watches, you know, I had a trial just a few weeks ago. Uh, and he was right in the front row watching my opening, watching my closing. So, it's, you know, it's been kind of fun. Yeah. I was going to ask you, you know, you, you handle these complex uh, medical malpractice cases. I know they're very expert intensive. I actually did med mal defense right out of law school. Um, I, I've seen some of your impressive results. And I wanted to ask you about a couple of significant cases that um, were, were noteworthy to me. Uh, the $6.4 million settlement in the medical malpractice case for um, a woman named Hermelinda Toro. Why, why was that case significant to you? 
Uh, a couple of reasons. Um, one, it was the first case that I worked up exclusively on my own. You know, I often work in tandem with, you know, another partner or I'm asked to come on with kind of, um, you know, the case has been initiated, but, you know, I'll be asked to do the workup. Um, so, so that was neat because it was the first time that I really uh, had this case and, and ran with it myself. But number two was, that I uncovered some interesting things in that case that really I thought were determinative of the outcome, at least at the time that that it happened. So um, this was an interesting case. There's something, and you may have heard a lot about this when you did defense work uh, in particular, but there's something called an audit trail, which is basically kind of the back end. Yeah, you're nodding the, the back end side of, of the medical record of these electronic medical records. And it can tell you a lot of things, and it depends on the healthcare facility and um, and I am by no means an expert, but one of the things that it told me in this case was that my client's medical records had been accessed and that something had been added or altered in them. And so once I got the audit trail, you know, it, it just has these kind of labels and it's hard to digest and understand. And so I didn't stop there. I had a million pieces of supplemental uh, discovery of depositions of informatics people to explain to me what these uh, findings were, what these recordings were on this back end kind of metadata side, what is in this audit trail. And what I ended up discovering was that one of the uh, medical providers of my client who, who passed away um, as a result of, of the negligent medical care, but one of her providers made some sort of edit or addition or deletion to her medical record on the day he was served with the complaint in the case, which was years after the medical care, right? So that should never, ever happen. Um, and that, in addition to, I think, you know, the proofs from the medical record really um, confirmed that, you know, this, there was, you know, there was negligence here. There were errors in the medical care that was received. Um, that this woman had undiagnosed bleeding, even though she was in the hospital, she could have been transfused. They could have done other things to address and control the bleeding, and they never did. Um, and I'm guessing that when this medical provider was served with a complaint and he went back and revisited the chart, you know, he he recognized that as well, and you know, wanted to make some edits or adjustments to the record to you know rewrite history a little bit. I don't know. Um, yeah. Well, it certainly uh, shows why digging into the fine details can really um, impact the ultimate outcome of a case because that's that's getting you know into those weeds and making sure that every stone is 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 turned over to make sure that there's nothing there. Um, yeah, there was another uh, result that really jumped out at me because of just how significant it was—a thirty-five million dollar settlement for a birth-related injury. Um, I've seen a lot of birth injury cases over the years, and that's 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 a significant recovery. Was there anything in particular about that case that was unique that led to it, or was it just the 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 size of the damages that led to the ultimate result? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so that case was primarily handled by my partner Joe Power, who is truly a legal you know giant nationally and, and certainly locally, uh, you know, just the best of the best. And so he and Joe Ballesteri primarily handled that case. I was involved as a supportive player and the case we were preparing for trial. Um, so I was 
getting ready to, you know, get more involved as we would, you know, go forward. It was such a complex case. Um, and, you know, Joe and Joe truly are extraordinary lawyers. They were able to absolutely maximize um, the outcome of that case. But it was a devastating injury to a, a little girl at birth. Um, you know, she suffered severe, severe, severe brain damage as a result of, uh, you know, mismanagement of her labor and delivery. It wasn't timely. Um, she wasn't getting oxygenation uh, that she needed as, you know, when she was still before her birth and then, you know, had just absolutely devastating injuries upon birth. And her parents are the most lovely people and the most dedicated um, people, parents you've ever met. Um, but, you know, she has such a long and difficult road ahead of her that, you know, it was so important to be able to maximize that recovery to make sure that she has the medical care that she needs, that her parents have the support that they need to be able to give her, you know, what she'll need throughout her lifetime, because truly just absolutely devastating brain injury. Yeah, those cases um, are always the most difficult ones uh, over the last 23 years in doing this that I've had to, had to, you know, work with families whose lives have just been upended by something like that, because it's, you know, altering no matter what. And um, I just had one that settled earlier this week where, uh, this woman had seven other children and then her, mm. her youngest child, you know, had significant, uh, injuries from medical malpractice, uh, birth. Mm. And that, that becomes such a difficult planning situation too, because the family needs money and yet the child was on Medicaid. And so, you know, mm. sometimes it's, it's so difficult and, and usually you don't have that kind of a settlement to work with. You've got much less and, you know, you have a life care plan that's, 50 million, $75 million. And so, uh, unfortunately, a lot of those, those cases wind up with Medicaid uh, needing to be preserved. Mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the last one I was going to ask you about was a more recent verdict. It was, um, uh, an $8 million plus verdict on a misdiagnosis of MRSA. Um, and that was one, I think that you tried, um, maybe yeah. with one of your partners. Yeah. Uh, we, that was just in January. So we were set to go to trial, uh, toward the end of January and we had picked our jury. And I remember we were here in the office on a Saturday, kind of talking through, I was going to give the opening statement on Monday morning and we get an email that a member of the courtroom staff had tested positive for COVID. So we had to declare a mistrial, wait a week and, and start over. Um, you know, so, and that was kind of at the, it was right after the holidays. So there, you know, Omicron was still surging. And, but, uh, once we were back at it, you know, about a week or two weeks later than we expected, um, you know, we went forward. It, it was a complicated case medically because it was about infectious disease, um, you know, bacterial versus viral infections. Um, and, but we tried to make the, the theory as clean and as simple as possible. Uh, that our client comes in, she goes to an outpatient facility. She's 59 years old and she has complaints of kind of an upper respiratory infection with some early, early symptomology of, of a potential lower respiratory infection. And then she makes a comment, which was recorded in the uh, physician assistant who saw her. That's the practitioner who was, was her care was at issue in the case. 
She makes a comment to her that's recorded in the note that says, my father recently tested positive for MRSA. So she's ultimately diagnosed with a, a simple upper respiratory infection, which, you know, we were saying and everyone's kind of agreeing that that's the common cold. So she's diagnosed with the common cold and she's given a Z-pack and you've probably been given those and, and certainly are familiar with them. It, it is an antibiotic, um, but you know, it's, it's the type of antibiotic that's kind of routinely given out. And in fact, it's often given out without anyone seeing anybody. You'll just kind of prescribe them over the phone. So, so we were saying, you know, that her lower respiratory uh, symptomology, especially in the setting of saying you've been exposed to somebody with MRSA is really significant and you needed to do more. Um, you needed to give her, if you're going to give her an antibiotic, it had to be effective against MRSA, but really what you needed to do was get a chest x-ray to see if that early symptomology was indicative of a pneumonia. Um, and sure enough, two days later, even though her signs and symptoms were not advanced when she was seen by this physician assistant, two days later, she presents to the emergency room and she's very ill. She has advanced pneumonia. And later that evening when the labs return, it's confirmed to be a MRSA pneumonia. So, uh, you know, on its face, the case was straightforward, meaning it's about one outpatient visit and then it's about this, you know, subsequent presentation to the emergency room. Um, but the defense uh, did a very good job of making it complicated. And, you know, there were a lot of signs and symptoms that are overlapping with the common cold and some things that are more concerning when they're in their early stages. So they were trying to say, look, you know, she did have signs and symptoms of an upper respiratory infection. Uh, a Z-Pack is a very broad spectrum antibiotic. That's why it's given out so frequently. So actually that's a completely appropriate thing to do. And she had normal O2 saturations. If you have an advanced pneumonia or really any um, decent pneumonia, you shouldn't have you know, perfect oxygen saturations. You shouldn't have a normal respiratory rate. Uh, and then they even went so far as to suggest that, that um, you know, MRSA pneumonia is so incredibly rare, which it is. Um, when you think of bacterial pneumonia, that is one of the most rare bacterial pneumonias. So they were using all of these statistics to show how rare it was, you know, and our, our response to that or my response to that was, sure, but you, not every patient comes to you saying, I've had a direct exposure to somebody who had, right? So we're not talking about everybody under the sun uh, and then looking at 1% of all those people. We're looking at a person who comes to you who's got these, you know, signs and symptoms of an early lower respiratory infection, who tells you about a concerning exposure. Um, so we ended up presenting the case for about uh, just under two weeks. Uh, the jury deliberated about two and a half hours and returned a, a just over $8 million, $8.05 million verdict. So um, we were really pleased. Our clients were, you know, um, felt validated. They and you know this, when, when things like this happen to folks, they have no idea what happened. They just know my mom was okay two days ago. She was seen by the doctor. She was told it wasn't a big deal. And then this devastating result happened. You know, can you help us? Can you answer questions? We didn't get any answers when we were at the, you know, emergency room or when we were um, waiting on these lab results. Can you tell us what happened? Um, and so, you know, we were very pleased that the jury got it right, that, they recognize that more should have been done for her, that a simple chest x-ray would have given that clinician what she needed to give the right antibiotics and that this whole thing, you know, was, was entirely avoidable, that um, our client shouldn't have passed away. 
It's an incredible result. And, you know, I mean, the, the hope is with, with these cases is that maybe it, it helps make, you know, the, the practitioners a little more, more sensitive to making sure that they do the right things, right? I mean, that's all. And when people ask, you know, about like things like the McDonald's coffee case and, you know, people that don't really understand a personal injury lawyer and what they do and, until they themselves become injured, um, you know, cause until you walk a mile in those shoes, it's hard to understand it. Um, you know, I always talk about, well, you know, there, there are many things that trial lawyers do that change our society, whether it's, you know, a product liability case, holding a manufacturer responsible or, you know, holding, um, a medical practitioner responsible for the harm they've caused or, or anybody. I mean, I, I know, you know, what, what you said resonated with me about, because I, I had a pretty serious um, shouldn't say accident. Someone hit me, um, when I was cycling, uh, back in 2016, I, I try not to use accident cause the guy hit me. So it's not like it was, you know, uh, cause that, that accident term sometimes is, you know, uh, that, that really isn't what happened, right? Uh, it's negligence, but, um, you know, when, when that happens, you, 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 you do, you, you want to feel like, Hey, something happened that shouldn't have happened. And there should be responsibility acknowledgement of, of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But you hit the nail on the head, you know, I mean, and it's fascinating to me, but I would say 90% of clients and even cases that, you know, we end up not being able to take for whatever reason. Um, but 90% of people who call us with a case say the same thing. And it's that, I never really thought I'd be filing a lawsuit or be interested in filing a lawsuit, but something happened here. I don't think it was right. I have a lot of questions and I don't want this to happen to somebody else. I mean, we hear that over and over and over. And it's true that this this advocacy work is certainly on behalf of our clients, but it's also for, you know, our broader society that that you're right. These changes are attributable oftentimes to holding people accountable. So it's a really important system for that reason, not just for the particular litigants in the case, but for all of us. Yeah, I try every year to post something out there on social media on the anniversary when I was hit, just saying, hey, beware of pedestrians that are sharing the roadways with you because, you know, when you hit somebody with a, with a car, here's what it looks like, you know, using pictures, because the pictures were not pretty. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, my face hit the car and, uh, you know, it, it wound up being a, you know, nine days in the ICU and three weeks in the oh, hospital. So the pictures don't look, I mean, thankfully, you know, I, I, I wound up uh, being okay, ultimately, and not, you know, having a brain injury or a spinal cord injury, as I very easily could have given the the physics of the, uh, the, uh, impact, but, you know, anyway, I, I do think there, there, there's some, hopefully, you know, of, of, Hey, maybe, maybe I can make a difference. And one more person just paying more attention to pedestrians. And that's, you know, obviously with what you're doing every day, you, you get that ability to, to hopefully make people realize, Hey, you, you, you have to take responsibility and, and make sure that your actions don't harm others. Yeah. You're so right. Um, so I saw you were quoted uh, as saying, I wish every day was a trial. I find them exhilarating and rewarding. Uh, also, one of your partners in your firm said that you're asked by others in the firm frequently to try cases uh, with them because you're a really, really, really good lawyer. High <laughs> praise. 
what is it that you enjoy so much about being in trial? Is it the laser focus you need uh, or is it something else? Gosh, yeah, good question. I, I think it's a lot of things. I mean, one, it's kind of the culmination of all the work that's been put in, right? So it's it's a little exciting just for that reason. You've been working for years dedicating you know, hours and hours and hours uh, of preparation for this main event, right? Um, and I enjoy public speaking. I enjoy advocacy work. So now you're, you know, it's happening. You're, you're on. Um, so I like that. I've always liked teaching. There's a ton of education that goes into jury work. Um, so, you know, teaching them about the process of a trial, teaching them about the burden of proof, teaching them the medicine that's involved and then teaching them about your client and what specifically happened to them and the harms that were suffered as a result. You know, I mean, all of that is interesting and appealing uh, to me and I like to think I'm good at it. So it's fun to, you know, do, but it's also really, really important because if there's a case that is on trial, um, you know, there's, there's, some reason, I guess, that, that the case didn't resolve earlier. And so you need to make sure that you're utterly prepared to be successful. Um, and I find the whole process totally exhilarating. You know, there's just a million things going on at any one time. So it's, it's challenging, but it is just a fascinating and really important exercise. So it, it is definitely my favorite part of our job. A couple more questions. So, um, you just talked about what you love about being a trial lawyer. So you've built a very successful trial practice doing a lot of medical malpractice work. Uh, as a female trial lawyer, what's one tip you would give other female trial lawyers that's part of your secret to success in building your practice within your firm? It's a great, a great question. Um, so at least in terms of tips for, for actual trial practice, I do think um, that you do need to find your own style, you know, stuff that works for my colleagues does not work for me. Uh, I kind of alluded to that earlier, but that's okay. You know, I think that that's nice. And on balance, you know, on these kind of complicated cases, we usually have two lawyers trying them. It's nice to have a balance. It's nice to have different approaches to the evidence, to witnesses. Um, and so, you know, I would recommend to any female trial lawyers that you don't, necessarily adopt something that you don't think works for you, that you try to develop your own style and it will be seen as more authentic and more honest and, and probably will help balance out whoever else you're trying a case alongside or against, right? If you're trying cases solo, who you're trying cases against. I hilariously, after one of my cases or trials a few years ago, spoke to one of the jurors because I just, you know, uh, she ended up being the foreman. She seemed really into the case. I mean, she was taking crazy notes throughout the whole case. So I just I felt like I had to reach out to her afterwards to say thanks and just, you know, learn a little bit about what happened uh, in the jury room. And also I was a young trial lawyer, so I thought it'd be beneficial to me to get her insights. And she said, uh, and, and we were against, you know, a really, really talented defense lawyer. And I'll never forget this because it was so funny, but she said, you know, Miss Conway, all you wanted was the truth. And that defense lawyer, all he wanted was to to be heard. He just wanted to make noise and you just wanted the truth. And I, I think what she meant by that was that I had a little bit of a soft-spoken approach, you know, when I was cross-examining people, I would do things like, well, wait a minute, are you telling us blah, blah, blah? You know, I would just act kind of almost dismayed in a quiet way. 
that they were giving this, you know, theory that that I thought was unsupported by the medical records. Whereas the other side would, you know, want to cut people off, move to strike answers, you know, kind of overwhelm and intimidate. And that was fine. He was very effective. But for her, when she saw that juxtaposition, she saw it as honesty versus dishonesty, which, you know, was great for me. And, you know, I like to think she was not wrong in that. But, um, you know, so find your own style because it, it may work very, very well for you. Um, and then in terms of building a practice, you know, that's tough. I, I found success in certainly um, building a network of, of other women in the law. You know, we all want to refer cases to and, and um, you know, give opportunities to our fellow female uh, lawyers and litigants. So, you know, that, that worked well for me. Um, but also I think there are great opportunities for women in the law. You know, a lot of my job is listening to patients. I'm sorry, well, they are patients, but listening to clients, um, about what they went through. And I think a lot of clients feel more comfortable talking about really personal topics, like the impacts an injury has had on them to females. So, um, you know, if someone interviews with me and interviews with lawyers at another firm, I've had really good success in them signing up with me. And I think it's because they just feel more comfortable. So I would just tell women that you have uh, a lot of advantages, even though you certainly have other disadvantages in this practice. Um, and to just remember those, focus on those, um, you know, and you'll, you'll do great. I think sometimes women tend to be a little more empathetic. Um, and yeah. so I, I think that, that that's certainly one of the advantages is that, you know, being able to connect in that way. It's, it's kind of a big thing that I tried to really instill in our team just because, you know, it's important who we serve and understanding that, that empathy piece. Uh, and that's sort of what I just took away from what you were saying is that, that there is that connection and you've got to, You've got to understand that to be able to really effectively, you know, pursue vigorously your client's interests, whether it's on our end or on the other end. I feel like that that's like a really important thing to me anyway, to make sure our team realizes that or at least be very compassionate to what somebody's been through. Sometimes empathy is a little hard unless you've really been through something like that. But so I use what I went through in my my personal injury case as an example for people here so that they get a little bit of personal connection just from me telling them kind of what I went through as yeah. part of my case because um, the hope is that hopefully they internalize some of that and realize what they do every day matters and the importance of you know making sure that you do everything you possibly can to help these people that we have the privilege of working with yeah yeah absolutely um, so uh, just two more questions. Uh, next one's uh, admittedly a bit self-serving. Um, what what are the most difficult issues that you face when you're settling cases today? Is it liens? Is it Medicare, Medicaid? Um, you know, the kind of trying to help clients deal with what they have to deal with after the case settles on from a planning perspective. What what is it that you see in your practice today that's most difficult? Yeah, that's a good question. And it, it definitely varies from case to case. But, you know, you alluded to earlier, you know, that some cases, right, they, they don't resolve for many, many millions of dollars. There are a lot of circumstances in which 
you know, the person who was at fault and caused devastating injuries, you know, doesn't have adequate insurance. We see that a ton in the automotive context, right? In, in Illinois, the state mandated minimum for liability coverage is $25,000. So in your instance, you know, you're, you're struck by a car, they're at fault, you're in the ICU for days, your medical bills are so beyond that alone, not to mention all the other impacts that that's had on you. So, you know, that that happens. And that is really challenging because how do you then really do anything for your client longer term um, if there's limited insurance? And that really is where um, I think the work that you do is so, so incredibly important. And your colleagues have really helped um, in instances where, look, there's limited recovery uh, possible here. We, we can prove our case and we can certainly prove, you know, the the losses that were sustained here are far exceed or or aren't proportionate in, in some way to whatever the coverage is, right? Um, and so then it becomes essential to make sure that you get those liens reduced as far as possible so that you are able to actually deliver something to your client at the end of the day. Now, fortunately, you know, that doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, that's a that's a real challenge. Yeah, here in Florida, the minimum's 10. So the guy who hit me had 10. Thankfully, uh, I had a lot of UM coverage all stacked. And um, that's an important point. I try to impress upon people, make sure you got UM and and it's stacked so that if if somebody like that hits you, because that's that's a lot of you know the time with these automotive. And, and like you said, I mean, my medical bills, full bill charges were, I think, in excess of 380 grand for, oh my goodness. for me. So yeah, that, yeah. but that is what it is. You know, I mean, that's, that's very, very oftentimes things that we see, you know, that, that there's only $10,000 and, yeah. you know, somebody's paralyzed or, or brain injured. It's, I mean, it's just such a tragic situation, unfortunately, but it does happen, you know, a lot of the time. Um, Last question, last substantive question, um, and I, I ask this of all my guests to conclude. Uh, since we're we're doing the trial lawyer view podcast, and you can answer this however you want, what's your view as a trial lawyer? Gosh, uh, you know, I'll kind of echo some of the things we were talking about earlier, but you know, it's such an important job to be someone else's advocate, to be someone else's voice. So. Uh, I can speak for myself and all my partners and colleagues that we take that responsibility so, so seriously. And I always remind myself of that before going out to trial, because it's easy to get caught up in some of the legal arguments. It's easy to get caught up in, you know, some of the competition of trial. But this case is about your client. And it is an awesome responsibility to be able to fight for somebody else who suffered a, a real loss wrongfully um, and to to try to help them in the situation that they're in. So I'd say that's my view. Well, it's, it's perfectly aligned with our mission and what we do here and uh, definitely echo that, uh, that responsibility, opportunity and privilege that we get. I always talk about that with our team because it, it is really um, an important thing that, that you do and then, then we get to do um, on the back end of that. Uh, so Given your area of expertise and specialty, I'm assuming that you co-counsel and you talked about referrals. So if, if somebody's listening to this podcast as a case in, in Chicago and wants to uh, co-counsel or wants to refer a case to you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, phone or email, I'm always available. 
uh, kconway at powerrogers.com or 312-236-9381. We'll add those into the show notes for today's podcast and want to thank Kate for joining me today on Trial Law Review and we'll see everyone on the next one. Thanks so much. It's been a treat. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Law Review. You can find more at triallawreview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.